What's up, everybody, and welcome to Cantorian U. As always, great to be with you here, and do hope you had a fantastic Fourth of July holiday. Had a great one here in the neighborhood with family and friends, although I think I took the water balloon fight a little too seriously. <laughs> it happens. What was the movie? Was it Dodgeball where the dads... There, there was a movie where the dads got a little too into it and really started beaming the kids. That, uh, or you know what I was thinking of? That, uh, that SNL commercial with Manning, with Peyton Manning, when he starts beaming the kids with footballs. That was me yesterday during the water balloon fight. Because I'm a big target. I'm like the local, uh, the local giant that the kids love piling on. So when it came to the water balloon fight, they were all going after me. And uh, I didn't back down. I brought the heat, man. I took a couple of kids out. It was awesome. <laughs> all right. So uh, today we're talking to a gentleman by the name of Richard Fitzpatrick, who's the director of photography and marine biologist behind Great Barrier Reef which is a new film that's being shown over at the Fleet Science Center on their giant dome screen. Here the thing's amazing, the screen and the film. Got to do both. But uh, just opened up over there, highly recommend it. Uh, being a uh, ocean enthusiast that I am, it was uh, exciting to sit down with Richard and hear about this project because I always hear about the Great Barrier Reef and specifically its health. And you, you hear that global warming is playing such a huge role in the destruction of the reef and we get into that in, in this forthcoming discussion because he, he shot the thing for over a month and he also grew up literally on the reef he, he was telling me stories about being 11 years old and catching sharks with his bare hands you'll you'll hear about that in this forthcoming interview and certainly encourage you to check out great barrier reef over at the fleet science center uh let's see do you want to thank our sponsors I don't know if you're planning a trip to Baja anytime soon, but BajaBound.com, one-stop shop for Mexican auto insurance. Hook it up. My buddy Jeff runs the operation, and man, I'll tell you, they've, uh, they've been hooking our family up as far as Mexican auto insurance is concerned for the last uh, 10, 15 years now. Every time we go down there, we hook up the, uh, we go right to the website, and it's so easy to get uh, insured because... You know, should you get into a problem down there, trust me, you do not want to be without auto insurance, specifically Mexican auto insurance. So you can hook that up at BajaBound.com. They have the lowest rates out there, uh, competitive, the whole deal, and you just know you're getting A-plus service. That's really what it comes down to, because if something should happen, you don't want to have a sketchy company on the other side. These guys are top-notch, and, and they get the job done, and we back them here at you. So go to BajaBound.com. Take care of that. Oh, I do want to thank also Tory Holistics. They've been with us uh, for quite some time. Uh, legal, licensed, adult use, and recreational use dispensary. It's crazy what's going on in that world right now. Have you heard? This is nuts. I was just talking to the folks at Tory the other day. Uh, they're in Sorrento Valley at the 5805 Merge. They have a delivery service too, as well as curbside pickup. If you don't want to deal with the lines, you can just uh, order ahead at ToriHolistics.com. But it's nuts what's going on in the industry right now. Check this out. So at the end of June, I don't know if you noticed this, but a lot of the uh, the local dispensaries were running all these 40% off and 50% off sales. And the reason for that is because there was this deadline that, that ran out 
at the end of June. So starting July 1st, basically all these cannabis companies had to be compliant when it came to certain um, child proofing regulations or um, trying to think what else. It was child proofing and testing. Testing was the other big one. And you had to be properly tested and uh, had the right have the right packaging in order to be in shops. And if you didn't, then shops would be held accountable. So basically, shops starting July 1st said you have to be compliant with all these federal laws, which are always changing, or state laws rather, which are always changing. And uh, if you're not, then you can't be in our store. Well, the majority of these cannabis companies, because let's let's be honest, we're talking about the cannabis industry. Uh, they, they dragged their heels a little bit. Now, whether it was because of costs, because of these changing laws, or because they were lazy or putting it off, who knows? At the, at the end of the day, you walk into a cannabis place now, one of these dispensaries, and they have a fraction of the supply and a fraction of the products on shelves that they used to have because all of these companies didn't get compliant by July 1st, which is why all these places around town were trying to sell off all their non-compliant merchandise at half off and beyond at the end of June. So now the whole industry is playing catch up. I just learned this all is fascinating. Just the other day when I went to uh, Tory and they broke it down because I'm like, hey, how's everything going? It was just, I was just checking in with a client and they're like, oh, you don't even know just because of all these companies and waiting for these companies to get compliant. And then you have this whole other thing, which is the testing and there not being enough testing centers to actually test the weed and all these cannabis products. So you have this bottleneck effect where even these companies that are trying to get compliant can't get compliant because of the bottleneck at the testing facilities. It's all a friggin' mess and wow, way off my pay grade. <laughs> But at the end of the day, they're up, they're running and working with the best of the best and the most legal and licensed companies. So, you know, if you go to Tory Holistics, you're going to be consuming stuff that are following all all the laws, regulations and testing procedures. All right. I digress. Also want to take a moment here to... Uh, thank our friends. I usually do at the end of the podcast, but I thought I would do it on the front end here uh, before we get to Richard Fitzpatrick and the Great Barrier Reef discussion. I also want to thank my friends over at Mariposa Ice Cream and congratulate them because they just scored a, uh, a huge honor. San Diego Magazine, the best ice cream, homemade ice cream in the entire city. Our friends and sponsors over at Mariposa Ice Cream Adams Avenue. They have locations in Temecula and Oceanside as well. And we thank them for being our number one patrons on our Patreon, which, uh, which means so much and goes so far. And you can find us on Patreon and that's uh, patreon.com forward slash U Y E W. Even though we don't do as much with the platform as we probably could, cause it's always, I don't know, always awkward and funky asking you for money. I, it's always been a really weird subject with me, but uh, it is out there. And if you do want to contribute to the network, it is much appreciated and it does go so far because at the end of the day, we're a struggling startup straight up. So we appreciate all your support and love. So without further ado, let's get to it. Richard Fitzpatrick, director of photography, marine biologist behind Great Barrier Reef, 
Check it out now at the Fleet Science Center, Balboa Park. Amazing technology out of Poway, I might add. And an amazing film. You'll hear about it right now. I'm from uh, North Queensland in Australia. So I live in Cairns. So uh, have you spent much time here in San Diego? I've actually been here a few times before. Um, the uh, camera gear that we use underwater is actually built here in Poway. No way. So it's only like 20 minutes up the road. So, yeah, uh, it's built by a company called Gates. And, okay. Um, so I come out regularly to see John and Karen who run it. And How funny. So, yeah, I love San Diego. I've probably been here about a dozen times. Yeah, so it's become a business trip for you. Yeah, yeah. It's all and catching up with friends as well, which is always good. Now, now before we talk about Great Barrier Reef and uh, your work as an acclaimed cinematographer, I wanted to talk a little bit about your your start because uh, I did the typical Wikipedia search and talks about your early life and your fascination with sharks. Yeah, well, I grew up on the Great Barrier Reef and. As a kid, about the age of eight or nine, I started to um, collect marine aquarium fish and have aquariums at home. And so, um, being a typical boy, I liked all the dangerous stuff. Sure. So I had stonefish and blue ring octopus and cone shells, and I even had little cat sharks called epaulette sharks. So I took one to school in year seven in an esky. Mum drove me to school with an esky full of salt water and a live shark. And so that was my first shark talk when I was about 10 or 11. So you would catch sharks? Yeah, yeah. So we used to just spend our time on the weekend snorkeling on the reef and hand catching um, whatever we could. Yeah, that was um, the rules of the parents. We had to catch it ourselves and learn the names of the animals and all that kind of stuff. And out of my group of friends, um, two of us became marine biologists. And Dougal, um, one of my friends, is works for the Japanese government now. And he goes down in submarines seven kilometres discovering new species. So he's no a, way. He's a major professor and like world-renowned deep-sea biologist now. And my other friend, um, Bevan Slattery, is my business partner now. So Bevan became a major IT entrepreneur in Australia. And so him and myself set up the, this company, Biopixel, together a couple of years ago. So we all still work together. That's amazing. Know? It's really cool. It's but you really all started cool. as a bunch of groms out there catching sharks. Yeah, exactly. Just kids out there doing it. And, you know, we've gone full circle into turning it into careers. Yeah. And so I still actively do uh, shark research. I'm at James Cook University okay. um, in Australia. And so I work on sharks, but also I'm in the, um, the marine venom unit as well. So uh, box jellyfish, cone shells, all the most venomous animals in the world I work on as well. So... And that's where the filmmaking and, and science comes together because, you know, Discovery Channel, Nat Geo, they always want you know, the latest and greatest on dangerous animals. And of course. And we have a lot of them where I live. Yeah, no doubt. And, and speaking of which, and pardon my ignorance, but you were able to remove sharks from their environment and you can't do that now, right? Um, well, when I finished my degree, I actually, because I'd been heavily involved with aquariums as a kid, I actually, my first jobs were in some of the big public aquariums in Australia. And part of that was transporting, capturing sharks, putting them in, into large public aquariums. So it's always kind of been a, amazing. a background of mine. And so then that led me, when I left the aquarium world to go back into, into filming and, and science, I, um, after spending years being very hands-on, with sharks decided to apply those same techniques out in the field where um, to catch the sharks I don't like using hooks we're trying to minimize stress to the sharks so we do these underwater rodeos and um or rodeos as you guys say um I go with rodeo actually yeah do you okay yeah, I'm a rodeo guy and um <laughs> so we catch them by the tail underwater and so 
that led me to come up with the shark claw, which is an invention I came up with for large sharks, like tigers and things like that, to capture them safely. Because um, I, I did do tail roping on them, but I got knocked out on many occasions. Which is what? Well, the um, getting tail slapped by a, a tail that's about five foot in size. Oh, jeez. <laughs> just literally knocking you out cold underwater. So my university was a little concerned about safety issues. And I, they said, I bet. No more catching sharks by tail until you come up with a safer way. And that's when I invented the um, the shark claw, which is like a handcuff. As the shark swims by, you just snap it on the tail and it's attached to a rope and a float and the shark swims off. And as soon as sharks have pressure on their tail, like restriction, they just stop swimming. Really? They just so, succumb? Yeah. Just... So if you hooked a shark and you tried to play it into the boat, you could spend 20 minutes, a half an hour. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. But if you catch them by the tail, you can stop a five-meter tiger shark in about 90 seconds. Really? Yeah. It's just like a dog rolling over on their back. Yeah. It goes into what we call tonic immobility. And they just go immobile. And then you can put the tags on them and let them go. And you haven't hooked them. You haven't caused damage to them. You haven't stressed them out with lots of lactic acid. So it's a much safer technique and lower stress for the shark. And we get much better data from Sure. As well. And uh, obviously, you've been beat around by a, a shark's tail. I've got to ask the obvious. Have you been attacked by a shark? I've been bitten three times, um, but each time has been my fault whilst I've been handling them. Really? Um, and so, yeah, and with the other animals, you know, stung by the jellyfish and, yeah. you know, lot, you know, I normally go to ER once or twice a year with some bite <laughs> or some damn injury. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, for this film, the, the the craziest injury I had was I um, popped the cartilage on my sternum as a result of filming baby seahorses. No way. So How did to, that happen? So we don't know exactly when a male's going to give birth because the seahorses, the male has the babies. So it's pretty weird in the first place. Right. And we can kind of guess when they're going to give birth within about three days. And they have like hundreds and hundreds of babies. And um, you get about five minutes notice they start twitching and going into labor and then it's all over in 15 seconds. So I had to sit there next to this um, pregnant male seahorse at the university. We had this um, big seagrass research tank and it was one of the males in that. And I just had to drink Red Bull and Pepsi Max for 72 hours until he finally gave birth. Are you kidding? Just sitting in there just ready to shoot. Just ready to shoot. It was just insane. And then I ran up and put the data cards in to back him up and... I must have just passed out, flipped backwards in the chair, landed on the, the arm of the chair next to me and just popped the, um, no. popped the rib next to my sternum. <laughs> so it's not the sharks and all the other stuff. It's you're a, yeah, it's always the... Baby seahorses. Yeah, least expecting. That's what takes you out. Yeah, all my friends are laughing over that yeah, one. Yeah, there's no way to induce labor. That's what I was thinking of the whole time. No, I, I was talking to the seahorse. I was trying to rationalize with him, going, come on, mate, you know, get it done and we can both have a break. Couldn't but, rub its belly or force <laughs> jumping jacks or no, anything? Nothing, no. nothing. Because I um, always wonder that, just from your perspective, you know, from your, where, where you sit on the other side of the camera, how much are you waiting for nature to happen versus you capturing nature? A uh, bit of both. Um, being a scientist, you know, we know when and where. Like coral spawning, uh, you see that in the film. That's when the corals once a year release the eggs and sperm into the water in this mass uh, spectacle, um, which allows the reef to replenish. And we know what nights that happens. And after filming it now for over 20 years, I know what hour, what to look for. Um, so we're pretty good on a lot of the seasonality issues. But, you know, to film 
fish spawning or feeding, um, you just got to be there at the right time. And um, the the seahorse birth, you know, I've only filmed it three times before, and we're pretty well one of the only people in the world that's been dumb enough to do it. Um, Based on how much time it takes, it takes a lot of time, yeah. a lot of time. So some sequences can take years to get wow. um, that you work on, but that's because we're always trying to show things that haven't been filmed before. And um, another memorable moment in this film is the um, the turtles at Rain Island, where the time lapse of them coming up on the beach. This is an island that's the size of a city block, so you know, it's only 800 meters long. So it's very small. Um, but that night we had 20, 24,000 turtles come up to nest. Wow. It was insane. That's fascinating. Yeah, and the, and the aerials looking down on this beautiful calm day, you're looking at this shot, and when we show people the shot, everyone goes, oh, it's just stars, but then the camera's tracking There's down. turtles. And you're just looking at it, yeah, my God, they're turtles. So, oh. Yeah. It's Great Barrier Reef, and it's here at the fleet. Tell us just a broad stroke about the movie. How long is it, and what type of an adventure are we going to take people on? So it's a 50-minute film, and we're not just encompassing the life of the reef, you know, the animals and stuff, but also we're following the journey of a girl called Gemma Craig, now, she's third generation growing up on one of the little islands on the Great Barrier Reef called Green Island. And, you know, in the media, there's a lot of talk about how the Barrier Reef's dying. And That's it's kind what of, I wanted to get to Kind eventually. of her journey, trying to find out what's the reality of what's happening. And how did you find her, the subject? Um, oh, actually, a mate of mine, his wife used to teach her, like go over to the island as a, because um, she used to do distance education via radio and then internet, and then occasionally teachers would go over. So yeah, I've known of Gemma for quite a while. Okay. And now she's in her early 20s, and she's working as a professional photographer in the dive industry. And she serves as your guide. And she's our, our thread through the whole story. So yeah, she knows the Cairns area really well, but she hadn't visited all the other parts of the reef. So for her to go see what was happening elsewhere, and all the different community and science projects that are happening um, in public science like things like um, Coral Watch Project Manta where people take photos of manta rays and send them in and they can ID which of the rays um, uh, uh, she follows a turtle that gets um, rescued by her and taken to the turtle rehab centre because uh, one problem we have with plastics and oh, yeah. other issues are the animals digesting them and then the turtles get what we call floating disease and um, they can take months to recover. So we follow the journey of one of the turtles through the whole film as well. And then we look at the latest in science and management on the Great Barrier Reef in terms of looking at maybe developing super corals, how to handle the crown of thorn starfish, which can occur in plagues at different times and eat the coral. So it's a big journey that goes through. But at the end of the day, it still gives a sense of hope that you know the reef is still amazing. There's a lot of it still alive, even though we've had you know big chunks uh, killed off of the recent double bleaching event. But the whole fact how it can regenerate if we create an environment which allows that to happen. And so the biggest threat to the Barrier Reef is climate change. And so it's the heat, right? It's the sun. It's the beating sun down on beating it. down causes corals to stress out and, and bleach and die. Um, so we're trying to give people a sense of hope and that things aren't too late and at the end of the day um, everyone on, the, on this planet is a citizen of the Great Barrier Reef yeah. you know, and it's a global issue climate change and you know the good news is it's not like we're waiting for some you know science fiction technology to come we have every, all the pieces in place all we need now is just the will to implement them and, and what do you what needs to be implemented from your vantage basically we need to you know reverse 
um, what's happening with climate change. And, you know, I can see, you can see it's starting to happen. I think, I think the economics and the will of people is sort of starting to override the political will. I agree with you. We have the same issues in Australia as what you guys have in America with in terms of, you know, this whole, you know, trying to rely on old fossil fuels and stuff like that. Whereas the will of the people are just bypassing the government, people are putting, and even industry is starting to bypass the government and um, going, look, we've got to change. And do what needs to be done. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if we look at the projections, if we get a handle on it, you know, in the next 10, 20 years or so, the, it's still going to warm for another 100 years, 150 years, plateau out and come back down again. But for the next 200 years, we're going to have to be a bit more hands-on with environments, even including the Great Barrier Reef, to help it weather the storm. And... Um, yeah, you know, part of the one of the research programs I'm involved with is actually at Rain Island with all these turtles, because a couple of years ago we found that the babies were dying in the eggs um, because the sea level was drowning the eggs each month on the king tides. Really. And so we got funding um, to raise the island. So we took up big excavation equipment and raised the island by one and a half meters. It's amazing. It's the first big manipulative you know, management done on the Great Barrier Reef. And so we did it in stages. So we monitored you know, how well it worked, the trial zone, then it worked. And we did the rest of the island. And now the baby turtles are surviving. So that shows you know, we can do things. And that's way more progressive than anything I see getting done over here. Yeah, it's, um, it, well, Rain it Island, to... it, it's the most protected island in, in Australia for, for the government to finally go, well, we need to do something. Yeah. And the money actually came from BHP, which is Australia's biggest mining company. And, That's amazing. And it's like, let's go do it. And so now it's like, okay, we've done that. We need what can we start doing yeah, else? I was going to say, we need more of this. Yeah. That's so fantastic. The federal government just kicked in half a billion dollars for manipulative management. So... You know, at the same time, it can be depressing that, um, you know, we've had these bleaching events and mortality. I must say at the moment, you know, it's pretty amazing time to be in science and hands-on, you know, management, adaptive management. And so for the young kids coming through, seeing this, going, the future is us doing really cool, big picture, you know, bioengineering, um, even just engineering out on the Great Barrier Reef. But then that can be applied to other right. environments around the world as well. So and I think, you know, next couple of generations, we're going to be having to give Mother Nature a hand. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's where your optimism comes from and mine as well, is that next generation. Yeah. That's fantastic. So how long did it take you to make this movie? Uh, we spent about 12 months out there filming. Okay. Not the whole time. We'd you know, do a week or two here, then you know, recover for a week or two. Okay. Um, the... The camera gears, the, the big, um, we had two systems, one to do the 3D version and one to do the dome version. And the 3D version weighs 300 pounds. So pushing that is like pushing a washing machine underwater. Are you kidding? Yeah, so you had to crane it in and out. So it's physically very demanding. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the technology involved because I know that's a huge component of this film is mm. groundbreaking and first ever technology. Tell us about it. So... It, the 3D side is a standard Hollywood 3D movie rig. So you've got two cameras, one to be the left eye, one to be the right eye. And then the whole thing has to be in this massive underwater housing. And so the housing was built here um, in Poway by a company called Gates Underwater Housing. 
So yeah, that's that's the system. We changed it a little bit, and um, and as you said, it's three hundred pounds. And <laughs> yeah. do you climb in it? No, no, no. Like just all just, just in front. It's just like a mega camera, and you got lift bags, so we can put the amount of air in it to float it, sink okay, it, so get it neutral. Okay, so you're operating above water. No, no, I'm in the water with it, pushing, oh, you are. pushing this thing around. So yeah, so it was um, when I first started, it was yeah, literally like swimming with a washing machine. So where they dropped me, I didn't move much, but. After a year of using this thing, I could swim around and spend an hour or two per dive. And so we're doing like yeah, four, five, six dives a day. So anywhere up to 10 hours a day underwater. That um, just blows my mind because I surf three, four times a week, okay? I never want to know what's going on underneath my feet. I'm that guy. So to me, you're just so fearless. Do you ever get scared? No, no. I prefer being underwater than on the surface because I can see things and control things that way. That's so funny. It's like, yeah, for me, that, the opposite's the surf thing. Is like, yeah, that just freaks me out. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> but at the same time, as it relates to sharks, people always say to me in regards to surfing, are you afraid of sharks? I'm like, no, I'm way more afraid of sharks on land than I am sharks in the water. Oh, for sure. Those land sharks, really dangerous. Yeah, terrible, right? <laughs> are, you've never been afraid of a shark encounter, though? No, like the times I've been bitten in, injured, it's been my fault. Um, but I mean... You know, the stuff we do with sharks is sort of the ultimate in crazy in right. terms of baiting and research and hands-on. And the, the art with what we do is actually to know when to stop, you know, um, give the animals a break, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've got a team with me that everyone's sort of keeping an eye that, on each other's egos and stuff like that. You know, not so much for egos in terms of trying to do it just to do it but you know if you're trying to get tags back off the animals or get tags deployed on the animals or trying to get certain shots done it's just if you can push you push yourself into a corner where you may have pushed the animals too far and you just need to have a um, voice of reason going look back off because for us to actually get injured is quite embarrassing and and a lot of paperwork right that's on you yeah that is totally on us and it's not we don't go out to you know always our number one concern is the welfare of the animal and then secondarily us making sure we don't not injuring ourselves too much it's like in any movie you always feel bad for the animal when the animal dies never the human (laughs) it's always (laughs) when the animal gets hurt and uh, what is next for you what's the next project in the pipeline because you don't strike me as a guy who sits around and yeah I actually came straight here from the Philippines so we're working on whale sharks and dugongs there and um just organising at the moment. Oh, actually, the, the, as soon as I get home, the day I get home, I'm off on a whale shoot for a week. Uh, but my next big thing is um, a lot of in-water stuff with the um, saltwater crocodiles. Whoa. Um, I don't like those guys. Yeah, where are you doing that? Uh, we're working up in New Guinea because uh, we've got to find water that's clear enough and you know, the, and the crocs allow us to get close enough to them. So, yeah. So do you have a home base here? But it sounds like you're always traveling. Do you have uh, do you have home routes and that whole thing? Or you're always on the road. Yeah, well, I'm based at uh, James Cook University in Cairns, um, so that's where the office is. And we have a massive aquarium studio there and research studio, so it's where we house a lot of the venomous animals, the, the jellyfish and the cone snails and the stonefish. So we have students doing research on, on those animals, and my colleague Jamie Seymour, who's the sort of world's preeminent a marine venom expert he he we work together side by side there 
Um, so yeah, I got, uh, I got my washing machine there, so I can just wash my clothes and just head out again. And you're always on the road, man. Pretty well. Underwater. That's amazing. And I just find it so inspiring just to think that it started at a point where, again, this the arc of 11 years old doing this and how you're still working with your same crew and have elevated your success to profound levels. And I can't wait to see the film. There you have it. Thanks again to Richard Fitzpatrick, director of photography, marine biologist behind Great Barrier Reef on the Giant Dome screen over at the Fleet Science Center. Check it out now. And uh, I just hear it's spectacular. Certainly after uh, talking to Richard, it's something I want to see. Otherwise, thanks again to all our sponsors and our patrons. Special shout out to Forrest, who's going to be a new dad shortly. What's up, brother? Appreciate your support, man. And uh, don't forget to check out the U Store, which you can find at uyewonline.com. We've got foamies and shirts up there and tanks, and uh, that helps so much when you, when you buy and, and support the brand and, and fly the flag. And thank you to Jake Nager and the Moment of Truth for supplying the background music that you hear. Uh, they've got a new record coming out next month. And certainly support them. Jake Nager and the moment of truth. All right. Until next time, be well and much aloha. All the best.